2: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
0: All right, I think we'll get started here. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Heritage Foundation, uh, release of a major paper. Uh, which will be the focus. Um, I was told we don't necessarily have to talk about silencing cell phones, but I'm going to say that anyway. So we uh, usually have a very robust online uh, audience and, uh, uh, yeah, the sorts of distractions uh, we just want to try to minimize here. So, again, thank you for joining us here. Um, we're going to talk about a new report on rebuilding the Army. It's uh, one of a series, uh, actually the third paper that's out. Uh, the first one talked about how to think about the future, uh, then we released one of the Marine Corps. This is a major paper on the Army and how to think about <clears throat> its relationship with uh, the imperatives of the national defense strategy, national security strategy, how the world is changing, and some recommendations for um, what the Army needs to be and the path it needs to go down uh, to get where it needs to be with a, a lookout to about the 20-, 30-year uh, time frame. Uh, we'll follow up with a paper on the Air Force, which I think is coming out next month, uh, and then we'll wrap up by the end of the year uh, with a paper on the uh, Navy. So we'll have all four services covered and how to think about preparations for the future. Uh, these uh, papers are meant to give an independent perspective, uh, advice, and recommendations to uh, the administration, to the military service in particular, leading officials in the Defense Department, and hopefully to inform deliberations in Congress. And uh, this one really hits the ball out of the park uh, on that. Uh, Starting about 18 months ago, the Army did embark on a major effort uh, driven by then Secretary of Defense uh, uh, James Mattis on increasing lethality across the force and a real focus on uh, getting back to an age of peer competitor fights with uh, major opponents such as uh, Russia and China. Uh, how do you do things other than irregular warfare, which is what we've been immersed in for the last 18 years? And so this paper addresses how to uh, look at those sorts of challenges. Uh, participating in the discussion today would be the author, uh, Tom Spohr, who uh, directs our Center for National Defense uh, here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, prior to coming here, uh, he uh, served in the Army for 36 years and retired in 2016 as Lieutenant General. been a real blessing to have him here uh, leading our defense efforts. Moderating the discussion will be Ms. Jen Judson, uh, well-known in the defense reporting and analytic community. Uh, She's the land warfare reporter for Defense News and has covered defense uh, matters in the D.C. area for about eight years or so. Previously a reporter at Political Pro Defense and Inside Defense. A uh, recipient of the National Press Club's Best Analytical Reporting Award in 2014 and named the Defense Media Award's Best Young Defense Journalist in 2018. I don't know how long you get to carry young as a title, but. Uh,
3: I've aged out already. Is that it?
0: Okay. <laughs> So uh, without further ado, we're going to turn to a great discussion, and then I think we'll probably open it up for Q&A later. When we get to that point, uh, we'll have somebody pass around a microphone, just identify yourself and who you're with if you have an organizational relationship so that our online audience uh, knows who's speaking as well. We'll try to keep it focused on questions and not personal statements. So without further ado, please take
2: well, thank you to everyone in the audience for being here and for those also watching online. And Tom, thank you for all of your hard work with this report. Um, and since it's been released, it's really triggered a decent amount of discussion and debate in the Army community, which is obviously a good thing. Um, so we'll dive deeper into those issues uh, in our conversation. But you know, it's my feeling that it's a, good idea, it's a good time to be making suggestions to the Army. Um, since they're in the process of developing the multi-domain operations concept, re-looking at their force structure, um, and they have, they're have they heading down an ambitious path in terms of modernization. So uh, just to kick things off, Tom, if you could talk about the purpose of the report, um, and you know why you decided to write this report, and how you went about researching, and um, talk a little bit about how your background applies to what you're doing in the report.
4: Yeah, thank you, Jen, and thanks, everyone, for being here today, and thanks for moderating this discussion. We embarked on this project, we call it the Rebuilding America's Project, or Ramp Project, probably two years ago. And we really didn't know what would be happening at the time these papers came out. And it's really fortuitous, as you kind of suggested, uh, that the Army paper came out now. They've just had a – they're in the process of a major change of leadership, uh, getting a new Secretary of the Army. Secretary McCarthy has his confirmation hearing uh, next week. Uh, The Chief of Staff changed over, General Millig moving up to be the chairman – the new Chief of Staff, General McConville, taking over just a couple of weeks ago. So that there was a, a clean breakpoint uh, where the Army could could reevaluate where they are and take a look at things. Uh, as the uh, introduction said, we have a new national defense strategy, and even though it was um, January, I think, of 2018, in Army terms, that's like yesterday. People say, hey, why hasn't the Army or the Department of Defense adapted to the new defense strategy yet? And it is worse than turning an aircraft carrier. You really, it takes years to turn uh, an organization like the Army. So I think this paper uh, came in a good time for us. The the Bipartisan Budget Act uh, passed a month or two ago in Congress gives the ability now to the Army to focus on their future versus these near-term, oh, we're in a shutdown, oh, we're in a continuing resolution, oh my gosh, you know, how are we going to get through these months? They actually now have the luxury, assuming that Congress does what it needs to do uh, to think about their future in a kind of an intellectual way, which is rare lately in Washington DC that you could actually think about these things. Um, Most of our research at heritage is focused on the near term fight. So we write a lot about the national defense authorization act, uh, the F 35 fighter, uh, things that are really kind of on Congress's plate. This, this paper and the two that preceded us are different for us looking out further Um, and I thought 36 years in the Army, I thought I knew a lot about the Army. You would think I would know a lot about the Army, but turns out I didn't know a lot about the Army. I've never really been a futurist in the Army. I've always been consumed on how do we get whatever the current task is done. So this was a stretch for me. I had to educate myself on the Army before I even got started writing this paper, because I'd heard the folklore of you know, General Sullivan and Don Starry and all those kinds of things, and it just kind of accepted it as a young Army officer. This made me go back and actually learn it. So that was hard for me, but in the end, I, I, I liked it.
2: So jumping in, what are some of the areas that Army's rebuilding did you look at briefly, and, you know, what are some of your conclusions? Yeah,
4: thanks, Jen. Um, tried to look at all of it. Uh, you know, I because I spent a lot of time in the Pentagon in particularly in equipment modernization and was a general there. I probably wrote more and thought more about those problems with which I was most familiar. Uh, so I looked a lot about uh, equipment modernization. I looked at the talent management of uh, SES's and general officers. I looked at the concept. I will admit I'm not a conceptual kind of person. So I did my best. I reached out to a lot of people, including some in this room, for their thoughts, and so I had to go to interviews because, you know, I don't live in the conceptual world. There's a whole uh, group that's almost a career field in the Army that thinks about concepts. I was never in that group, so I had to um, talk to those kinds of people to better understand that. Um, By and large, my conclusion that, that I reached pretty early on was that the Army was on the right path and that that a wholesale revision of the Army's modernization plans was not needed, that there were course corrections. I saw some areas where the tapestry, if you will, was kind of fraying around the edges and that they could tighten up their story and they could tighten up their justifications for things. Some places where I could not, frankly, understand why they were pursuing a particular uh, modernization program to the degree they were, uh, long-range strategic cannons. Uh, falls in that category. And again, I did my best to understand, but there there could be things that are classified that I they weren't able to share with me to help me better understand. Another example of that is the, uh, the requirements for the optionally manned fighting vehicle. I did my best to understand them, only to find out near the end that they're classified FOUO, and they wouldn't, you know, I couldn't get them, and so I couldn't really fully explore why the Army was pursuing that vehicle to the degree it was i looked at manpower uh, how big should the army be how quickly should they grow their uh, force and i looked at organizations what kind of organizations do they have now and what should they grow in the future and found some some areas where i think they should uh, develop some new organizations okay
2: all right so diving a little bit more into the modernization side um, and you seem to think you know they're on track but you know, this is obviously a complicated thing, and they're moving very quickly. Um, so there is probably a lot of room for error at this point. Um, but it sounds like since it's so early on, course corrections can be a good thing. But you know, what are, what are some of the future challenges they could be facing in executing modernization plans? Yeah,
4: there's lots of challenges. And one of the first things I figured out as I looked at the history of Army modernization is that luck plays a big, underappreciated factor. And so you can have the best thought out, conceived plan and all of a sudden, if the world environment changes, if your army needs to go do something, fight a fight, you're not going to be able to modernize to the degree. You You may be able to salvage some aspect of your modernization program, but you're not going to be able to carry out the plan that you had envisioned. And I, looking back, you could see that that didn't occur in some cases. The army kept driving on, thinking that this, this whatever we're fighting, that's just going to go away, and we can continue with our plans. Uh, You see that with FCS. And so the Army valiantly tried to keep going down the path with future combat system in the face of fighting two significant counterinsurgency fights in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in the end, the counterinsurgency fights won and FCS lost. And that wasn't the first time that has happened, but that's the most salient example uh, to me. Um, So luck. Uh, if your funding gets cut, and whether or not you like it or not, the Army's funding gets cut about once every 15 years, fairly dramatically. You can't modernize it if you're trying to keep your service alive and keep your nose above the water. You do you, you do the best you can to survive until you start to get another influx of funding, and you can't <clears throat> you can't protect your service and modernize. It's just too hard. So that was something I realized. Um, so I think the Army's doing a good job. I, I, one of the things that I also was underappreciated to me was the difficulty of facing two threats simultaneously. And so we talk about Russia-China. We almost, it's almost like a hyphenated word, Russia-China. But when you look one level below that, you know, it's very different uh, type of threats that they present. China presenting more of a maritime air threat, Russia, more of a conventional ground threat, and for the time being, they are using the same concept and essentially the same types of equipment to address both threats. My sense is, over time, that's going to become harder and harder as these threats diverge, as China becomes more and more capable. And it's going to be hard to to manage that duality of threat and while also uh, maintaining your counterinsurgency uh, capabilities.
2: Um, you talk a lot about successes and failures in the past, and you mentioned FCS. Um, can you dive a little bit deeper in terms of the successes and failures that we've seen in the past, and, and you know, do you think the Army is applying lessons learned from those?
4: Yes. <laughs> so I'll talk about some of the, I don't even want to call them failures because it's so pejorative, but so in, the, I started out in the paper talking about the pentomic division, which was this reaction to President Eisenhower's decision to focus on nuclear weapons and how the army uh, was almost in danger of becoming irrelevant. Uh, And so the chief of staff was persuaded to change his entire force to focus on nuclear warfare. And so he created this thing called the pentomic division that had essentially five battle groups, large battle groups, and the idea was uh, so big a division, so dispersed that it could survive nuclear attack and it, it could also employ nuclear weapons. Um, they rushed into this design, and it almost immediately—maybe even before it was fielded—people uh, figured out uh, this was not um, what the army needed to be. And it was an it was a, an example of where they rushed into a design, started designing the force before they even had the concept uh, figured out. Fast forward to um, uh, to, to Pew and in, in Tradock. Had some good ideas about how to change the army. He had a concept called active defense, and this was in response to a huge Soviet army threat in Central Europe. How do I, how do we actually come up with a concept to fight this? And so he came up with an idea, brilliant man, of fighting an active defense, and it postulated falling back to various positions of strength, uh, uh, treating the enemy. The dilemma was he, he didn't share this concept widely with the army. And so it was kind of a small little staff group down in training and doctorate headquarters. And so when he finally uh, uncorked this bottle of wine, if you will, it, it didn't meet with acceptance through the army. And whether you like it or not, acceptance in the army is really a critical aspect of whether a concept is going to succeed or not. And so he had kept it kind of close hold, brought it out, and the army won because he hadn't shared it, Two, because it had this counter cultural preference for the defense over the offense and like it or not all the military services tend to culturally culturally favor the offense and so it really did not catch on and i was not in, in the army at the time but I, I you know i was still i could sense that the moment i came into the army about how this we had this concept that nobody really bought into uh, in terms of successes those are more fun to talk about and so i'll talk about the striker brigade combat team Uh, conceived as the interim force uh, by General Shinseki, and it was fielded by the Army in record amounts of time, less than five years from the idea that we want an interim force, that we had striker brigade combat teams maneuvering in the area of Kandahar, uh, or uh, rather in Iraq, rather, I'm sorry. Um, And so very quickly got that concept out, and it was just an example of how when you set your mind to something and you have cohesive leadership and focus on it, uh, it really can come together. Uh, another example would be task force modularity. When In the middle of the Iraq-Afghanistan fights, when the Army was presented with a requirement for more brigade combat teams than it had, it modularized its brigades and created more of them, uh, and they were self-sustaining, had their own artillery organic uh, to It had all of its uh, capabilities that a brigade commander would need, organic to that brigade. And again, that happened in almost uh, 18 uh, to 20 months. And so it was really a quick effort. And then the classic example that most Army officers will point to is Airland Battle, uh, conceived by Don Starry, uh, codified in really uh, the 1982 edition of 100-5 Operations, uh, where he really followed all the precepts of successfully Uh, changing the Army. He was intellectually prepared, Uh, he had a great team, he did the homework, he took it everywhere, talked to everybody about it, and in the end it was a concept that served the Army well for over 10 years.
2: I know one of the more controversial parts of your paper uh, is regarding uh, reordering prioritizations. Um, Long-range precision fires you said to keep at the top, Um, but you suggested bumping next-generation combat vehicle uh, down to the bottom and then underneath that future vertical lift um, from the number two and number three slots. Um, and you also recommended moving the network up to number two. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your reasoning with those recommendations?
4: Yeah, thanks, Jen. And so you're right. I, the, the moment my paper was published, my inbox lit up, my email inbox uh, lit up uh, with my a number <laughs> <laughs> number of people interested in my reordering of the modernization priorities. And so. I don't know how the Army established their first round of parties. They've not shared that rationale, but I thought I would just use a very simple analytic method and, and think about um, the, in the multi-domain concept, how important is this capability to the successful execution of multi-domain operations in the year 2030? How can looking forward, reading the concept, accepting it for what it is, how important is this capability in their concept? And then looking at the current force we have today, and how close is that capability we have today to what we need in 2030? So, if, for example, if we have a wonderful uh, fleet of soldier lethality weapons, in my view, we would be a sixth then. We're already where we need to be to execute multi-domain operations in the area of soldier lethality. And so I took that very simple matrix and applied it to the six modernization areas. And in in multi-domain operations, long-range precision fires are critical and we're in very poor shape today. So long-range precision fires came out right at the top. And then if you're gonna employ any of these capabilities, especially in multi-domain operations, the network is key. I mean, multi domain operations talks about the rapid and continuous integration of warfighting fighting domains. If you don't have the network to do that, you can't do multi domain operations. So I that came out on number two. And then similarly, I just went down the line. So air and missile defense, we are in pretty poor shape right today. And that's going to be a big thing in multi domain operations. It came out number three and Just on down the lane, to to make the list of the six modernization priorities already means your thing is important. So the fact that in my ranking, future vertical lift came out number six does not mean future vertical lift is not important, because that's six in a list of dozens upon dozens of Army programs. And so the fact that you made number six should make you feel really good. That was not reflected in the correspondence I got from some of my friends. so it was useful for me and i don't presume or uh that the army as a result of my insightful analysis will change their modernization priorities but what i would like is the next time they update them refreshment whatever they do that they also release their rationale for how they came up with this listing so that i can say oh yeah that makes perfect sense to me i understand how soldier lethality came out to be number six or something like that because I could not track the pedigree uh, in the on the multi-domain concept of their modernization priorities.
2: I think that's an important point and something I asked at the defense news conference uh, a few days ago of of General Murray the Army Futures Command commander you know what was the rationale for the priorities and actually didn't really get a straight answer but I think one thing he did mention was that you know they're adamant that the priorities aren't going to change right now Um, And it's important to them I think in terms of making a case to Congress and things like that to not sort of disrupt the list Um, Let me me just
4: add because I did that I had that job of establishing the Army's monetization priorities, and so I've been on the cynical end of this business and when I was doing it We often would say you know what? Where do we have the most money? Where are we at the most at risk? Well, by golly if we've got X billion dollars in army aviation It only makes sense that aviation is our number one priority right then people can say money priorities it all matches i i got this and uh so that's a pentagon view of the world mm-hmm. and a budgeteer's view of the world that's not necessarily the right view of the world
2: mm-hmm. it's interesting you point that out because uh, the commander also did caution that if funding were to change that potentially the priorities would shift around <laughs> yeah. as as well uh can you talk a little bit about some of the feedback you you did give out without naming names of yeah. course just some of the the counter rationale uh, that you got, especially in terms of future vertical lift and next generation combat vehicle?
4: Most of the feedback um, that I got back, a lot of it was very positive. And so a lot of people, including the Chief of Staff of the Army, the Secretary of the Army, who I've met with the Chief of Staff of the Army on this concept, we talked about this concept for about 90 minutes. I'm due to meet with Secretary McCarthy uh, later this month. So they've all been very receptive to my ideas, and they've been appreciative of the fact uh, about us another opinion, a second opinion, an outside source of it, so i would i don 't want to characterize this as uh, the army has circled its wagons and that they're and because they're they 're not there and general murray um, I sent him a copy of the draft paper he sent it to all of his four star contemporaries at the other uh, army major commands, and so I b- believe it has kind of filtered all throughout the army. The feedback has been good, but I have been. Asked about my rationale, we'll just say aviation, as I talked about being one of them. Um, most people say you um, don't understand. You do. Um, you don't understand why future vertical lift is so important to the future fight. And I said, I think you're probably right. Mm-hmm. I am maybe the only, one of the, of ten people that have read multi-domain operations, the concept cover to cover like ten times, uh, held it up to the light, trying to. Uh, you know, interpret it and could not really find an overwhelming argument in favor of, of future vertical lift. Um, so that was one criticism. I, I've gotten a little bit of criticism about the uh, priority I ascribe to next generation combat vehicle. And um, that could be that I just can't see uh, how they establish the requirements. So, you know, the fact that uh, it must carry this number of soldiers, it must have a 30 millimeter gun with an option for a 50 millimeter gun, all those kinds of things, it's hard for an outsider to to look into the Army's rationale, why they are making the requirements that they are for that vehicle. Um,
2: Talk, uh, I know that you mentioned uh, in the Next Generation Combat Vehicle bucket um, that it, with the optionally man-fighting vehicle to replace the Bradley, that the Army uh, back off the, Initial requirement to have the vehicle be optionally manned uh, or <laughs> autonomous, uh, and talk about why you why you feel that that should be dropped. Um, I, and you know, I was able to ask the Next Generation Combat Vehicle (CFT) director, uh, Ross Kaufman, right. on Wednesday as well about that, and he argued that if we don't put it in the requirements now, if we think about it too late then um, it will be more costly to incorporate yeah. later. Um, but talk about you know why you yeah. think it, it's potentially important to maybe back off of that in terms of feeling yeah. the first tranche of OMF. I,
4: I think autonomy and uh, robotically controlled, uh, there's a future for that in the military. Um, but I, our Army network, such as it is today, is not sufficient enough to really even do what it's supposed to do today, much less take on the burden of now controlling uh, autonomously or robotic control vehicles across the battlefield. It, it just isn't. And you think about what, let's say a robotically controlled vehicle will need multiple uh, video feeds. So you're gonna wanna see in front of your vehicle. Presumably you'd wanna be able to see a little bit to the side and maybe even in the back. So now you're, you're streaming over whatever your network is, four or five video feeds And now you want to stream fire control and navigation and driver control back to somebody. And now let's say you have more than one of these vehicles. You start doing the math on megabytes per second required to support the operation of a robotic infantry carrier, let's say, on the battlefield. It's an extraordinary amount of bandwidth uh, that is not currently available to Army forces. Maybe at some point it will be, but it's not today. And then think about... We can't really make, today, we can't make an autonomous car uh, that can drive on interstate highways. And now think about, you now want to take this autonomous vehicle and drive it across something like the National Training Center at Fort Irwin with wadis and ditches and at night and all those kinds of complications. Uh, It's an extraordinary requirement for a vehicle to operate like that, especially a combat vehicle where you have to be fairly certain that before you push that button and fire the main gun that you're actually pointing on a, at a, an enemy versus a friendly. I think it's um, useful to have the hookups. And so let's say you want a the wires in the chassis already so that if you actually do want to drive this vehicle at some point uh, robotically, that the wiring is all in there and the connections are there. But the place where the box would go that would control this vehicle autonomously or robotically right now should be empty. And it should not be contributing to either the cost or the testing requirements of this vehicle because we could feel that today and the Army network is years from being robust enough to support that. And I've said that to audiences and nobody says, oh, you're wrong, (laughs) that's not not right. And so I've said it enough times that, um, and maybe we can get to Q&A, somebody can tell me I'm wrong, but I've said enough times that I'm starting to believe that my assessment is correct on this. And so I believe in autonomous vehicles and robotics and saving soldier manpower and perhaps lives. I just don't think we're ready now to make it a requirement in our combat vehicle.
2: Okay, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and switch over to focusing on multi-domain operations as, as a concept. You know, obviously, the Army's working on that. And it seems that every service has a slightly different take on what it means, and, and, but also as a singular service, the Army really is spearheading this. Um, you know, what does your paper say about this? Um, and if you could talk a little bit um, about how the Army should potentially move uh, to focusing more as, you know, for this as a joint force concept.
4: So I am very complimentary of the Army's multi-domain concept. I sat down with the authors, uh, the people that supervised the authors. I am appreciative, and I think the the thinking and the writing that went into that document is fresh. The prior concept, I think it was 2014, not fresh. It was warmed over uh, kind of stuff from the refrigerator. This is actually fresh thinking, and it it talks about the problem of layered standoff, the kind of, you know, the uh, Russian SAM uh, surface-to-air missile batteries in Kaliningrad with the S-400 keeping us out even while they're making their – fate accompli attack into uh, latvia let's say or something like that and it talks about how to solve that challenge and the the thinking and the writing on that is fresh and good and sound um my questions revolved around you can read the concept and it uses the word army and joint force interchangeably and you can't it has to be one or the other uh, it has to either be a joint concept or the army's concept it can't be both and it's They've attempted to be both, and it's almost like they're, it's a forcing function to the joint force to, um, to, hey, you guys need to adopt this. And no one has ever said that to me, but that's kind of the sense I got is that um, we think this, is the, this should be the joint force concept because the Army cannot implement multi-domain operations on its own. They just cannot because, it, like I said earlier, it requires rapid and continuous integration of all warfighting domains, including the hard ones like cyber and space and navy of which the army really has no control and no assets they're you know receivers of these of these war fighting domains and so without the complete integration of all the whole joint force the concept won't work and um, they know that so i didn't when i you know when when i had that discussion with them like yeah we got it we have to have chairman joint chiefs of staff we have to have all the other services really seamlessly on board with this concept and i was like well so What's the plan? How do you get to that point? And they're like, not sure yet. We're working it. We're talking to the Air Force. I think the Air Force maybe is the closest to the Army. Maybe the Marine Corps is second and the Navy uh, furthest. I think they have hope that um, when General Milley, you know, not to take anything away from General Dunford, when General Milley becomes the chairman, he may have an urgency on making the next joint operating concept a lot like multi-domain operations. I think we're due for a joint operating concept. I think that's, maybe we're on the cusp of it. I don't know. And maybe it already talks about multi-domain operations. The previous joint concept kind of read like that. Um, I also, as I mentioned earlier, I worry about this diverging of the threat and whether or not one concept such as it is right now will be sufficient in future years to deal with coin, to deal with China, and to deal with Russia, all in the context of one joint operating concept. I'm not sure yet. But again, I applaud the concept. I think it's good. It it has the hooks, if you will, to, to pull Army capabilities. You can see where there are obvious deficiencies in Army capabilities that need to be solved if they're going to be able to implement multi-domain operations.
2: Uh, you know we've talked a lot about the equipping side of modernization, all the cool technology uh, but uh, can can you talk a little bit about um, what the Army needs to do um, in terms of modernization related to you know having the right people in the right places for the right amount of time, uh, what you're seeing the Army doing now and what they should be aware of and, and potentially uh, make sure that they're doing in the future to to stay on course with their modernization yeah. plans
4: yeah, so I'll talk about the talent management aspects first, I think. And so, because I saw a lot of this when I was in the Army on the Joint Staff, not on the Joint Staff, on the Army Staff, rather. Um, We tend to put, especially Army General Officers, into positions for which they have no experience. And sometimes that's okay. So, for example, you can put a former Army Brigade Commander in command of an Army Division, and he knows it. He's got it. I mean, he's watched his boss operate. He knows how this uh, movie ends. But if you take A former army brigade commander and you now make him in charge of army modernization or you put him in charge of a cross functional team you know responsible for managing the testing and the finance and the requirements and the acquisition of a category of equipment that's a task for which he or she has had no preparation probably (laughs) Uh, but yet we throw him into the pool i remember when i was in like sixth grade My swimming teacher threw me into the deep end of the pool, and I guess they figured he's going to figure this out. Well, that's kind of what we do in many cases with our Army general officers. And so it's not related to modernization, but I'll give you an example of this. The last two commanders of Army Recruiting Command, which presumably is a key and essential position for the Army, our recruiting is our lifeblood, they've had, before they went to that job as a major general, they'd had no recruiting experience whatsoever. And they were kept in that job for two years, and they moved on. They were both great officers. I knew them both. But what other organization would put people in command of a recruiting operation with no prior preparation, not even like a school? Here's your two-week school to learn how to recruit. It's just like, hey, bud, you got this. Uh, Make this work. We do that a lot in the modernization world. And so we bring in officers to the Army staff um, that have had no preparation. Good preparation could include uh, being the commandant of a branch school, um, working as in a project manager's office, working in the requirements world. We often don't do that. And, um, and then once we get somebody in one of those jobs, they need to stay there. They need to stay there for two, maybe three, even better, four years. You, it takes you a year to figure out what's going on. And then in that second year, you start to see better ways to do things. And in that third year, you start hitting triples and, and and home runs. The second year you're in a job, you're hitting doubles at best. At the third year, you're starting to hit triples. But most Army officers, and in fact, some SESs never get to the third year. They leave at the second year, and they tell their successor, hey, I just now figured out things. Here's a list of things I would do. And so your successor is getting this list, and he's, he says, well, I got it, but I need to look around for that first year and see if this is really right. And then the cycle repeats itself. And so we need to train our officers, we need to prepare our officers, and then we need to keep them into position. And so keeping the Army Futures Command commander there for at least five years, keeping cross-functional team leads in their teams for at least two to three years. We're, We're about almost two years into the cross-functional teams, and four of the eight have already turned over. Now, maybe that was because this was like the initial crop of CFT leads, but they've got to keep those people in longer. Otherwise, they are going to reinvent the world, the wheel, and the next soldier team guy will come in and say, you know what, I know my predecessor thought that a squad automatic weapon replacement was really important, but what we really need is this new pocket mortar or something like that. And we'll repeat the cycle of changing priorities and things like that.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so one of the themes of your paper revolves around what you call groupthink. Um, and that's a phenomenon when subordinates uh, you know, mirror their superiors' opinions and um, are somewhat afraid to disagree. Um, that's, that's suppressed, kind of makes me think of <laughs> Pentagon wars, which is funny. We're talking about replacing the Bradley uh, you see that happening in, in the movie. It's it's quite an accurate depiction, I think, of some of the things that have gone on. But, uh, you know, have you seen uh, the Army doing anything to move away from this um, cultural issue that they have um, at this point? It, it seems like it would be an important time to to focus on avoiding that.
4: Yeah, groupthink. And there's a wonderful book on groupthink by a guy named Irving Janis, wrote a book on it. And it's not military, it's groupthink in general and how it has contributed to bad decision-making, like the O-rings on the Challenger space shuttle or Operation Market Garden, when we decided we could uh, take this town of Arnhem, the last bridge, and everybody was saying, well, there is no way. But no one wanted to tell the boss that going to Arnhem was just out of the question. And so we dropped in on Arnhem, and we got our guys killed. So um, groupthink is not a particular thing of the Army, but we do it pretty well. (laughs) <laughs> and so uh, I use FCS as an example of groupthink because I was in the Pentagon at the time of FCS and everybody could kind of tell that FCS was had jumped the tracks uh, we kept changing it every year because we kept getting our money cut or we something didn't wasn't testing right we couldn't get this thing to perform and so we would alter the program just a little bit but if you were foolish enough to raise your hand and say why are we doing this? You would get cut off at the knees because at that time, you know, it was kept being emphasized. And I think I was a brigadier general at the time that this is an army thing. You don't question FCS. Um, Otherwise Congress will get wind that within the army there's dissension and then wham, the money will be out of FCS. You know, so how do you combat group think? Because it's insidious. And if the chief of staff of the army, for example, says, the next infantry fighting vehicle will be have the ability to be unmanned. Everybody's like, hmm. uh, I guess we can't talk about that. That's been, that's been put in this category that is like chief of staff guidance. We can talk about, you know, does it have an uh, automated turret or not, but we can't, I guess, talk about that. And so you really got to be careful as a leader in the Army of putting something in this category that can't be talked about. It is sacrosanct and... You know, I'm not in the Army, so I can't see everything they're doing right now. And I've always been critical of general officers that get out of the Army and talk about things that they don't know about. And this is one that I don't know about the real current efforts of the Ar- Army to combat group thing, but I am still worried. Uh, I don't see a lot of articles in, for example, War on the Rocks, that says this part of the Army is screwed up. I see, I was seeing lots of articles like that about the Air Force, but I don't see a lot about the Army, and I don't see in like Army Magazine, I love Army Magazine, by the way. I saw Dan come in. Um, But there's not a lot of questioning of current Army modernization focus, like the long-range strategic cannon that can supposedly fire projectiles at 1,000 kilometers, like from here to Portland, Maine. Uh, I can see that may be technologically feasible I just don't know if it's an, a thing we need. But you don't see articles in the professional journals that talk about what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And written by captains or sergeants or majors. So maybe it's happening, and I'm not seeing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the senior leadership of the Army really needs to be careful to make sure that these things, these little shoots and sprouts, can grow be discussed, and in the end, a decision has to be made. You can't – it can't be a democracy where everybody gets a vote, but at least uh, hear these thoughts out.
2: Um, We haven't talked about force structure yet, um, and that's obviously something that's very important as the Army uh, considers uh, force structure aligning with its multi-domain operations concept going forward. Uh, so talk about some of the types of new units that you think that the Army needs um, and how you address the mix of force structure between the active and the reserves. Yeah.
4: Great questions. Um, one of the things that you find in competition at great, against great power, China, Russia, is that brigades are no longer going to be it. You know, so that was our thought as recently as five, ten, seven years ago, is that the brigade is it, and divisions just exist to tell brigades what to do, essentially and that all combat capabilities had been pushed down to the brigade level and any kind of capability, fires, uh, anything else at division or higher had been de-emphasized, done away with. So we did away with our, I think we did away with our core artilleries and things like that, gave all, all the assets we had essentially to brigades. When you're fighting a Russia, that's not gonna be enough. You need people that are thinking about the, the, the deep fight, uh, the further back fight, that the brigade commander can't focus on. And so we have to reinvigorate, which we nearly just all did away with, the echelons of the Army. And so giving divisions and corps and field armies tasks that are appropriate to their level, that they have the information that they can deal with it and prosecute that fight, uh, that they have the intelligence and the the requisite assets, whereas the brigade commander does not and cannot. So they have to rebuild that. And it's kind of funny because we... We nearly did away with all that and so we kind of put that ship in reverse the army hasn't talked much about that I don't think I'm not hearing it uh, But they're in the process now of reimagining what capability should be at the division level what should live at the core and even bringing back uh, field armies uh, for, for That even have capability and so there's that I, I see the need I think a lot of people do for the army to have formations which can employ uh, anti-ship missiles um, ballistic missiles that type of thing in outside the normal brigade division construct and so if we need an anti-access or anti-ship missile capability we don't want to have to deploy a brigade oh because oh by the way it has it inside of it we want to be able to gra- grab that capability maybe it's a battalion and send it to the philippines or send it to vietnam or someplace like that that doesn't exist now i know they're They're thinking about those kinds of uh, capabilities, especially as they think about where do they nest their um, precision strike missile. Uh, And I'm I'm guessing they're going to probably announce that someday. about how how do they intend to, where are they going to put that capability, where is it going to live, who's going to control it, that type of thing. Um, Great people like General Wesley are thinking about those kinds of things that we just haven't uh, seen a lot yet.
2: Hopefully that will be soon yeah <laughs> you also uh suggested uh growing the army to 50 bcts can you talk a little bit more yeah. about that rationale
4: yeah i can um oh, i and you know i neglected to mention that this was one of the elements of controversy that i got and a lot of people surreptitiously sent me emails saying hey we agree with you about the size of the army but if we increase the size of the army we won't have any money to do all these wonderful modernization programs that we envision and i said i got that that is a problem, but I'm just calling the shots like it is. The Army needs to be bigger if it's going to do all the things it says it needs to do under the National Defense Strategy. If it's actually going to uh, counter Russia, counter China, and actually cover other hot spots of the world, about 50 BCTs is the number that at Heritage we think is about right. And we did that based on a little bit of historical analysis. We figured we looked at past conflicts in about 20 BCTs was what the Army needed per major conflict to kind of uh, counter things going on there. And so if you want to do two, that's 40. And if you want to have enough to uh, have some meager amount of rotation, some amount of presence in other places that you don't want uh, to go to complete hell like Korea in the meanwhile, then you need about 50. And General Milley has kind of said words to that effect. I've looked at Rand Arroyo studies that say things similar. And so when you need 50 BCTs, It gets you to about a regular army of about 540,000 soldiers. Can the Army recruit that number? I don't know. Can the Army afford that number? I don't know. Luckily, I don't have to figure those things out. (laughs) I just am saying what I think the Army needs uh, in order to do its missions under the National Defense Strategy. We can either grow to that number or we should change the National Defense Strategy. But we should not live in this limbo where to execute the national defense strategy is high risk with the Army we have today at about 479,000 in the regular Army. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Have you considered when you look through the lens of uh, what potentially we'd see in terms of capability, equipment, weapon systems? do you think that we'd potentially need that same level of manpower? I mean, it's it's somewhat hard to tell when we're talking about autonomy and robotics and things like that, um, you know, whether we need to think about manpower the same way we have in the past.
4: Yeah, great question. And so, for example, if we can make an automated turret, an auto, or let's say so if we can make an auto loader for our self-propelled artillery, if we can reduce the crew on a tank to two people by having an auto loader, we might be able to get a smidge more out of the force uh, and maybe a BCT does not need to be, like an armored BCT does not need to be some 3,700 soldiers. Maybe it could be a bit less. So there's opportunities there maybe to save, but there's not a lot. And so you think about an infantry brigade combat team, if you want to give it a, a sector, you need soldiers. You need soldiers that are covering, you know, their whatever you want to give them, 10 meters or something like that, a frontage or something like that. And you just can't – robotics um, – are, is not gonna save us a lot. It's gonna get us a tank crew maybe of two or a self-propelled howitzer crew less, but it's not gonna be much. And the other thing we need to account for is the enemy is modernizing too. And so they're, they're bringing on capabilities. So for example, the, the Russian Armada tank already has a, a, an autoloader in their tank as well. And So it's not like we're advancing technologically and everybody is standing still we're in a world where everybody is racing ahead. Right.
2: Um, I'm going to ask one more question, then we'll open up to the audience. But you know, what are some of the key signs uh, you know, that will indicate the Army succeeding or failing in its modernization plans, and what are some of the biggest risks?
4: Yeah, one thing I'm looking forward well, I'm not looking forward to it. In fact, I hope it never happens. But one of these 32 modernization programs that the Army has championed is going to fail. Uh, it's going to not succeed. We'll just put it that way. How does the Army deal with that? Do they, uh, do they embrace that failure? You know, we've always talked about innovation. You know, you embrace uh, early failure, that type of thing. How do they deal with that situation? I'm interested to see how that goes, because they have put a lot of uh, their reputation on the fact that they now believe they're executing correctly. Um, what does Congress do? So Congress has kind of shown some early signs that they may not be completely supportive of all the Army's move that they made in the famous night court, You know, they unfunded, I forget what Secretary McCarthy says, you know, killed 90 programs, you know, cut 90, something like that. Congress has shown very early signs that they may not be 100% on board with that. And so it only gets harder. And so the moves that the Army made in 2020 are not that big compared to what's going to start happening in 21 and beyond. If Congress can't support these money moves, the, the minor ones that took place in 20, The Army is not going to be able to do fully execute their modernization strategy. Uh, So I worry about that. I worry about continuity and tenure. Right now we have great leaders in the Army, and we've always had great leaders in the Army. But the leaders now in the Army are focused on modernization. That is an aberration. That has not been the case. And so Army leaders in the past, because I've worked there, have seen – uh, working on Army modernization programs as somebody else's problem. Do and this this modernization that we're on now, that the Army's on now, is going to have to uh, It's General McConville's successor, successor, and his or her successor. They are all going to have to continue this path and keep paying attention to this because if they allow it to drift off target, um, it will not succeed.
2: I think, like, one of the fears is that the dream team has yeah. been broken up. Um, Fortunately, there's some continuity with McConville McCarthy moving up. Um, but, yeah, what happens after this, this team of leaders that right. seem to work so well together are today or anymore?
4: I mean, I remember going to the front office, we call that, on the E-ring of the Pentagon, and, and talking to the scheduler for a very senior Army official and saying, hey, I need an hour of so and so's time to come in and talk about army monetization programs, and they're like, "No, <laughs> uh, can you do it in twenty minutes?" And I was like, "No, I really can't." And and that was the end of the conversation. I never got my hour, you know. And so uh, you got to devote time to this thing to make it work.
2: Okay. All right. Well, I think we'll open up for questions from the audience. I think there's a mic going around. I see somebody in the back with their hand up.
1: Sir, Chick Munitions Industrial Task Force. And I guess my question is generated from the very short time frame to deploy and field the hypersonic missile system. And I want to go back to your comments in the beginning of your paper about group think again and critical thinking. And uh, it seems we're a paradox. when, If you go to the National Training Center and sit through an AAR it's critical thinking and it is an attitude where you're not worried about what you say you see something wrong you say it that does not exist in modernization and i'm thinking specifically of uh, a system like uh, crusader where we denied hydrogen embrittlement even being a problem until the senate sent a staffer down with two engineering degrees and wiped fort sill out and all of a sudden there was an alternate propellant that, that started. Uh, we have smart people in the Army that we could have listened to and worked that problem. And I worry about that same thing happening in something like hybrid, you know, the, the extended range programs, uh, because uh, the Army is going to be focused on cost, schedule, performance, get that field, unit fielded. How do we get, and I know you started addressing it, but that same thing that happens at the national training center into the modernization program
4: yeah that's a great question and in my paper i talk about hypersonics again it's not a topic which i'm an expert on but again you read the multi-domain operations concept and it does not put a hook like i've talked about there's lots of hooks in it it doesn't talk i don't see a hook for hypersonics um and so sometimes i worry in this town you know you'd be astonished to learn that we actually get in a frenzy about things. And one of the things we're currently in a frenzy about is hypersonics. And the driving force behind our frenzy on hypersonics is the fact that the Chinese and Russians are working on hypersonic weapons. And what you don't read about and you don't see much discussion about is, okay, how would we use such a hypersonic weapon? What problem does a hypersonic missile solve for the joint force? What would we shoot it at And if we hit it, what would that get us? Now, I can kind of see it from the Chinese side. The US has fairly robust missile defenses, and so maybe they want to take out a THAAD battery on Guam or something like that. That makes sense to me. What what do our uh, hypersonic missiles do? And maybe that's all written down somewhere and I just can't see it, and I'm not smart enough to understand it. But your point is well taken. I don't I you know the army has said hey we're gonna have a hypersonic missile tested in I don't know 21 or something like that next year next year yeah. right okay and I don't doubt that if you put enough energy behind that and General Thurgood is a wonderfully uh, brilliant officer that we can do that now what what's its problem set where does it reside in the army echelon and what is its problem set what do we use it for um, exploring those kinds of problems is something You don't see written in any kind of professional journals right now. And I think we need more of that. And I'd like to see Army leaders sponsoring writing contests, uh, telling the War College to, to get people to write on these kinds of things so that we can get that kind of discussion going.
3: Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I'm a reporter from Voice America. My name is Dong Yoon Kim. Uh, I have like two questions. First is, uh, regarding North Korea, like you in your paper, you said it's well traditionally less equipped but uh, sheer size of uh, vast size. Now, in, from May, North Korea introduced their new uh, technology uh, sconder type uh, missile, which is uh, far, much more better, it's much more to avoid missile defense. And many experts are actually concerned about the dual capability. It's not only a uh, nuclear bomb, uh, weapon, but also chemical weapons. And regarding that, how do you think the United States First Korean Army or should re- uh, address this uh, issue? And second is, so you talked about the uh, we need much more army size. And right now, I think if you go for a real combat situation, it's about joint operation with the allies. Now, South Korea is also going for a modernization process. They're cutting the size of the army to 0.1 million. How do you think, so, and because the environment of uh, the peninsula, it's a short range, and some has to defend against the mass size of the uh, North Korean uh, size, how do you think uh, the modernization of the ally structure would affect the overall strategy, deterrent strategy? Thank yeah, great you. questions. and
4: so. I mean, you you are probably right. What what you, I typically find when I when you deep look deep into North Korean modernization programs, that they will announce to great fanfare the feeling of a new system of some kind. But then you look, and it's in some cases like the Russians, you find that they've only fielded like one or two or a battalion's worth or something like that, and so they have not achieved really a decisive combat capability. So yes, they have proven they can develop the most advanced of technologies like ICBMs and nuclear weapons, I'd be very surprised if they actually were able to get a thick capability of these new weapons or something like that. It's something clearly we need to take seriously, but I don't think given the extraordinary economic pressure that they're under that they are going to be able to modernize their army past. You know, they're probably at uh, third-generation aircraft. Most of the world's at fourth generation, some in fifth. So their aircraft pose no threat. Their nuclear weapons pose a threat, and so really they are like, in some cases, Russia—a time-distance problem. They are so close. They have positioned so many indirect fire systems close to the border that they are a time-distance problem for South Korea and thereby also uh, the United States. Okay, I think
2: we have time for a few more questions. I I don't.
4: I didn't get your second part though. Was the the size of the allies? Yeah. I'm worried about the South Koreans cutting the size of their military. I'm not an expert on it. I worry that they're cutting the size of the military not because of a strategy-related reason, but because they're having challenges recruiting. And that's about all I know about that. Okay, let's back behind the... Thank you. Dan Roper, hey, Association of the United States Army. Great report, Tom. Uh, question for you. How does the U.S., based on what you wrote, you talk about maybe MDO should be expanded beyond just overcoming the anti-access area denial problem, and it, just to do that problem, the Army's modernizing virtually everything, updating its concepts, and trying to accelerate them into doctrine at an unprecedented rate. If we expand the scope of MDO to get beyond that that penetration problem, what does that do? Will that cause the Army to diffuse its efforts and try to fix too much as opposed to too little that you, know, you raise a very great point, And I struggled with this point because we have had operational concepts in the past that were too diffuse and did not <clears throat> focus enough. And so this one is exquisitely focused on defeating layered standoff. I like that part about it, but as I was looking for more hooks to talk about the future force, there's not much in there about now defeating the adversary. So now we have cracked their anti-access shield, Now what? And, you know, it talks about penetrate and disintegrate with a hyphen in the middle there. So it talks about that, but it's not – it's almost an afterthought in the concept. And so I would have liked to have seen more discussion about how that's supposed to go because that would then maybe put the hooks in for what do we need for the next generation combat vehicle or something like that, which right now it's really kind of not well covered in the concept. And so I I take your point, and I don't want this – Warfighting concept to become a really big, big thing that covers every element of the army equally. I think it's very useful to focus. This is an area where I confess, you know, I have not precisely defined the solution. I just think I see a problem. Thank you.
1: One in the back here. So Dave Johnson ran Tom. Um, I'm really interested in you digging more into the question of how do you create not breaking group thing, but how do you create the ability to have dissent? Um, There's an interesting book by a British brigadier who was in Detroit during World War II, and he said the head of Detroit uh, of Caterpillar Tractors said, the problem with the Army is it's engineering by edict, and engineers have no rank. So when the chief says something or somebody else says, it is writing contests that will be off limits. And I think we're in a place where... You know the ability to I don't can the army do that internally to, or do people outside have to do it yeah I'd like to think the army can do it
4: um, internally because uh, there's not enough people externally honestly I mean you could have a conference of people to think about the future of the army and you could fill a small conference room and that'd be about it um, you have to reward those that are mavericks that think You know, even if you don't agree with their thinking, if they've come up with some kind of idea, which is counterculture, the rest of the Army needs to see them being applauded and rewarded and somehow uh, given better jobs and bigger jobs. And, um, you know, I remember H.R. McMaster, when he was a one-star, he was – I'm trying to think of a nice word. Uh, He was opinionated and – and would not let anyone silence his opinions. And so, you know, there was some question about is HR, is this the end of HR? You know what? And HR progressed on beyond anybody's wildest dreams, probably his too. But how do you make sure that HR McMasters keep getting promoted and how do they not get uh, hammered down? Um, writing contests, you're right, might not be the right answer. Um, just a system that rewards those kinds of people, the chief of staff, Other leaders have to be patting those people on the back. They have to – I loved it when – again, I read War on the Rocks. I agree with 30% of it or something like that. But I loved it when this guy in the Air Force who was anonymous kept writing letters saying, hey, the way the Air Force manages people is wrong. And then finally one day like General Goldfein got on War on the Rocks and wrote a letter saying – hey, I want you to come work for me, you know. And I loved that part because it showed that he had thick skin and he wasn't taking offense to this and that he actually read War on the Rocks. Uh, that hasn't happened in the Army. And nobody, nobody. I'm, I mean, you just don't see any articles. I mean, I'm picking on War on the Rocks, but it's just an exemplar for me of a place where people write freely. Uh, we don't, there's not much of a presence on War on the Rocks except for Dave Johnson. You know, and uh, a couple others, Bob Scales maybe. Not many people in the Army write on War on the
2: Rocks. That's a problem. All right, we'll take one more question.
0: Hello, sir. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Kerry McEwen from the Army
2: Talent Management Task Force. So you talked about a couple of things uh, in terms of talent management for GEOs and SCSs, and uh, both of them, one was training, one was time longer time in their, in their jobs to learn their craft. And those are, um, they seem like tweaks on the current system. The task force is taking a look at how do we design a new system that takes into account the NDA authorities that we were granted, that the services were granted last year, things like opt-out of promotion, direct commissioning, merit-based promotion, just to name a few of those. Um, what are your thoughts on how the army should proceed in with using information and data analytics to inform the way that we bring talent into the army? How we may be branch officers and then um, This marketplace for assignments how we select people and, and things like that just yeah. interested in hearing your thoughts sir Great
4: question Thanks for what you're doing. i I'm, I've watched the army, you know and It's changed even in the three years that I've left it and so now there's these assignment modules where uh, managers of uh, assignments host the open jobs they have and and officers can say i'd like that job and then the units say yeah that's the right person for me i'd like that person too that is huge i think and, and a huge step in the right direction i love the new nda authorities that have been granted the services um taking a sabbatical direct entry i'm not a big fan of the uh, Purple-haired cyber warriors that we would induct directly and make them lieutenant colonels. If that's, I hope I'm not crushing your feelings on that or anything like that. But if if we can bring in talent from the outside or a reserve component that can directly meet an army need, I think that's wonderful. I want them to meet our physical fitness and and other standards. Uh, and but we can't confuse that person that we just commissioned a lieutenant colonel with some other person that has spent 18 years on active du- duty or regular army. They are not the same. They are different. Uh, it's just like you wouldn't put an army doctor in charge of an infantry battalion. You wouldn't want to take somebody like that and give them responsibilities that they've not been prepared for. But I think it's wonderful flexibility and the army should take vast. I remember talking to General Siemens about it and he was excited about it. Um, I've probably not answered your question very well. I will say this. The army has traditionally focused on preparing officers for service at the next rank. And that has been the fundamental imperative. And so if you're a Brigadier General, I need to get you to be the Deputy Commander of a division uh, so that you can be selected at the next two-star board. And that has been kind of our, that is the idea behind career progression of a Brigadier General. And that probably succeeds in getting him or her promoted to Major General. But what it does not do is get good outcomes and outputs from that officer while they're a Brigadier General because they're moving around so fast they're dizzy they've been pushed through a division in 12 months or something like that maybe they were given a com- commandant of the infantry school for another 12 minute, 12 months and now they're a major general mm-hmm. and he got to be his major general the infantry school suffered and that division suffered because we felt this imperative to push him or her through so quickly to meet these gates and I know the Army sees that but I don't know that they've reconciled themselves on how they're going to fix that. Thank you.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon to Thanks go over your report with us. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for coming.
4: Thanks, everybody. Jen, that was wonderful. We went, like, five <laughs> Did we really? Yeah. They probably broke the general down
2: <laughs>